Hello, everyone. Um, so we're going to go ahead and wait a moment to give uh, additional participants uh, time to join us. So just hold tight for a couple of seconds and we'll get going. So we're almost near uh, the century mark. So good evening, everyone. Um, I'm Julian Hader. I'm an associate professor of leadership studies at the Jepson School of Leadership Studies. And I'm also a Richmond Public School parent. So thank you for joining me in welcoming the Jepson leader in residence, Rodney Robinson, who's also the 2019 National Teacher of the Year. Oh, it's really a pleasure. And since its founding, the Jefferson School has invited local, state, and national leaders to play an active role in our community as leaders in residence. So by interacting with these leaders, both in and out of the classroom, students have many opportunities for learning and for networking. And we asked Rodney to join us as a leader in residence this year because of his dedication to both the city of Richmond and its students. A 20-year teaching veteran, he is a passionate advocate for vulnerable communities and their students. He was teaching in Richmond Public Schools at the Vergie Benford Education Center, a school located inside the Richmond Juvenile Detention Center, when he was named the 2019 National Teacher of the Year. In his current role as Senior Policy Advisor for RPS, Rodney advocates for economic and cultural equity in public education to ensure that students have teachers and administrators who look like them and value their culture. He created the RVA Men Teach, an initiative uh, Richmond Public Schools launched in December of 2020 to support the recruitment and retention of male teachers of color. He also coordinates anti-racism programs for the school district and the greater Richmond community. Rodney, thank you for joining us this evening. It's a pleasure to have you. It's my pleasure to be here. It's my right. pleasure to be here. So I'm going to start it off with a broad question um, that people might want to know, like, how'd you get the call to teach, by the way? You've been at it for 20 years. <clears throat> and um, What inspired you into the, into the classroom? Well, I think what inspired me to go into the classroom was my mother. Mom, she wanted to be a teacher, but she never got the opportunity due to segregation. Mm -hmm. But she always taught us that it was our job to take care of community. You know, and so I, you know, growing up, I've always, you know, if it's some ride my bike down the street, check on Mr. Jackson, make sure he got wood, that sort of thing. And so I figured as I've gone into college, what better way to honor her in that tradition of taking care of community than to become a teacher? Right. So I feel that gave me my call. So, you know, so many students generationally have been like sacrificed in some ways at the altar, at the altar of implicit biases, right? Uh, teachers struggle sometimes to understand their students, especially if they're not of or in the community uh, that they're teaching it. I myself, by the way, um, you know, struggled with this. I was placed in slow classes um, in large part when I was in middle elementary and middle school because my teachers couldn't associate us acting up with us being bored, right? And if it weren't for my mother, here we are again, right? Advocating on my behalf, um, who knows what would have happened to 
uh, my educational trajectory, you know, and I, and, you know, so I want to ask you a question about like, how important is it for students to have teachers that they can relate to? Well, I know from my own experience how important it is because growing up in rural Virginia, I only had one male teacher of color, you know, and he was the, the, my everything at school. He was my cultural savior. Right. You know, he was that guy when I was going through something, I could go to him, talk it out. Bam, I'm good. Let me go handle this situation. If I had to deal with that, something else, I go talk to him, get his advice, and I would handle it. And so what we need is we need teachers who understand the students, right. you know, and so it's so hard right now for students because they're going through so much. And the last thing we need is someone telling them that they're not who they are. Right. You know, we definitely need people in the classroom who says, you have a great gift. I'm going to nurture that gift. I'm going to grow that gift. Right. I'm going to push you to be whatever you are or whatever you want to be, no matter what that gift is. And so it's important to have teachers of different cultures who understand the different gifts that kids bring to the table. You know, if it, my mother walked into the principal's office and said, give him an IQ test, right? <laughs> and I aced it. And they were like, oh, I mean, and I thought, and then I think about like all the guys that I grew up with and all the sisters I grew up with whose parents didn't advocate in the way that my mother did that had, that were and some of them were my intellectual superiors. Yeah. And so it is, it's absolutely important that people understand um, the people, the, the students that they're teaching, you know, and I, I'm gonna kind of switch gears because I wanna speak even more broadly about some of the problems that the Richmond public school system has come up against in recent decades and some of the misunderstandings about what's happening. And, you know, the first question I have is like, a lot of people don't understand the difference between equity and equality when it comes to educational reform. Can you flesh that out a little bit for the audience? Well, when you talk about equity, I think it's, you know, I want to rephrase your question first. Sure. Yeah, yeah. You say the problems Richmond Public Schools has uh -huh. had. I'm going to rephrase that and say the problems that systemic racism have forced upon Richmond Public Schools. Fair enough. Yeah. You know, and it starts with economic equity. You know, the fact that our students have been denied so much by society that the school system has to then make up for those losses. And then we're getting criticized because we're spending more money while well, students have more needs. So it's really important that we get the money to fit the needs of our students. And we know that the state funding formula is just, I mean, quite honestly, it's racist. You know, it was, it was designed on massive resistance as a way of rewarding people for moving to the suburbs, out of the cities, you know, and it's based on local income tax. Right. And what that does is that's, that fuels the suburbs, that fuels those huge districts that can afford to spend whatever on students. And so it really hurts not only Richmond. You know, I remember when I was first named state teacher of the year, I went around the state with Superintendent Lane. And I mean, when I say around the state, we went, far south westward did you know you could drive for six and a half hours and still be in virginia <laughs> that that part of virginia you know and those, and those, Wilder knows that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and those localities are suffering from the same situations you know our funding formula is rooted in racism and unfortunately that racism 
not only affects urban areas, but it really affects the outer rural parts of Virginia. You know, as a matter of fact, the Ed Trust said districts are in Virginia, poor districts receive 7% less funding than, you know, higher socioeconomic districts. And so that's not equity. When I say, when I say equity, I mean, what do the poor districts need so that their kids can compete with those from the suburbs? Resources. And then you give, give them the money it takes to get those resources. That means that the suburbs from the state, you get a little less money because you already have a high tax base. Let's give that money to those districts who need it, which are usually urban, usually rural, and predominantly students of color. But for so long, I have a couple of questions to follow up on this, right? People have thought about schools in the Richmond public school system as like fiefdoms almost, right? That they're not interrelated or interconnected, right? To what extent, you've been in the classroom for 20 years. Well, a lot of times when we talk about Richmond public schools, we talk about it in a vacuum. How, how many other things affect what goes on in the classroom? I mean, how much is this a function of poverty? How much is a function of food deserts? Um, the challenges, I mean, seem almost insurmountable if you recognize just how many issues um, that have absolutely very little to do with the school system itself, the Richmond public school system faces. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you could talk all day about just the, the, the rampant poverty throughout the city of Richmond, how that has been created over time, um, especially when you look at how the city is segregated, how the east end of the city, you had the majority of your housing com housing complexes, public housing complexes. You know, we could talk about that all day, but the reality is, when you know, I hate to give the simple answer. People are like, what's Richmond's problem? And I say racism. Yeah. Because this, this this didn't just happen. This was a system designed to keep a population under control, to keep a population in a certain place. And then when you start making other systems, such as school funding, that punish those people who've been forced into those situations, then you're going to get lack of resources necessary to have a solid school system. You're going to get lack of resources to have a you know, um, have affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And so it's really just the overall massive failure of public policy. Right. And then when you try to come out of that failure, you're then more barriers are put in the way. For example, you know, and I know I might ruffle some feathers right now, but Go for ahead. example, I don't know how many people understand this, that Richmond Public Schools has a memorandum of understanding with the VDOE, the Virginia Department of Education. And so everything Richmond Public Schools has does has to be approved by the VDOE. Well, the VDOE has been criticized for their lack of diversity. There was a JLOC report last year that said Virginia Department of Education did not have one person of color in their entire senior leadership. And so now you have, when we talk about cultural equity, we talked about that already, right. how you need diverse voices in the room to make decisions that benefit all but now you have no diversity telling diversity what works best for them. It's sort of like an overseer mentality and it right. really affects the effectiveness of leadership because it's so, I mean, I hate to use this term, it's sort of like an overseer mentality. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't implement a policy without VDOE permission, but VDOE 
doesn't have the cultural competency to understand how those policies work for the people in our school division. So the importance of this is, uh, is, you know, so many people think of bigotry or racism as an individual act of malice, but really what you're saying is that things done on purpose can only be undone purposefully. Yes. Right? That's, that's pretty much, I, I think there's this tendency in the United States to think that the further we move away from our tortured racial history and the second, you know, and Jim Crow segregation, that these problems are just gonna go away organically, right? Because we've moved beyond them. Can you speak a little bit about the intentionality that it's going to take to move beyond these problems? Well, first of all, it's no longer Jim Crow, it's James Crow Esquire. You know, it has a suit and tie on and a different way of doing it, but it's still the same result. And if you want to tear down these systems, you have to be intentional. You have to call things out for what they truly are, name it, identify it, and then work together to solve it. And what that requires is, number one, it requires people to take a hard look at the systems. And how am I, what is my role in the system? You know, I think um, Lerone Bennett said, in the, in the education system, you know, that you're either an oppressor or you're a liberator. You know what I mean? And so that, that's really where, we, where we're at. And some people don't understand their role in the system, quite frankly, even though you may think your role is, oh, I'm a great teacher, I'm a great school. But in reality, you're perpetuating these inequities and you're pushing, you don't understand how your position takes away and denies other people their position. Right. You know, in July of 2019 article, the Commonwealth Institute reported that the presence of black teachers has been linked to black students' improved attitudes toward their school, reductions in chronic absenteeism and school dropout rates, increased levels of college enrollment, improved academic performance, you name it. Can you give examples? I'm gonna move us toward maybe coming up with some solutions can you give some examples from your life and the life of your students about why it is important to have teachers who look like them? And I know we touched on this question, but I want to think about it in terms of how we start to think about how that ties into the equity that, that, we're, that we're discussing. What does, it, what does the future look like in this way for, for young people in representational politics? Right. I know, I'm going to tell you a story, you know, and this is about the comfort of a person of color. You know, I worked at the juvenile detention center. One of the things we had was we had listening parties where we'd invite politicians in to just listen to our students. You know, Mayor Stoney has been there a couple of times. You know, just listen to the kids and then you can respond after you listen for a while. And I remember when Senator Jennifer McClellan came, you know, and when she walked in, you know, you know, you know Jennifer McClellan. She's a very fair, very fair-skinned black lady. Black woman. And I remember when she walked in, the kids were dead silent. Now, even though we had went over who she was and they knew it, they were still silent. And then one of the kids asked, whispered Are to you me, black? Is she black? <laughs> and I and I said, Yeah, she's black. And then it's like an old school game of telephone. You uh -huh. watch each one of them tell the other one around the class that she's she black. was black. <laughs> she's black. You know, and then one kid, you know, asked us you mind explaining your race to me? And uh -huh. she explained who she wasn't. You know, she was black. Could not get them to shut up after that. Uh 
Uh-huh. It was a sense, a connection of, that they felt to her. And they, I mean, they poured it out to her, all the issues that they were facing, that they were dealing with. And it turned into some legislation that she pushed through to get, you know, pushed to push toward an end to the school to prison pipeline. Right. But that's that connection. Right. Those students felt that more comfortable once they realized that she was a black woman and she understood the struggles that they've had being young black men and women in the city of Richmond. And so when we get teachers in the classroom who have that understanding of what does it mean to be a young black or Hispanic or Latinx boy or girl in the city of Richmond and the problems that they face and what they go through every day, it would really, really go a long way in improving outcome and results. First of all, let me correct some. That's not a Commonwealth Institute study. Right. You know, I always feel give give black people credit where it's due. Number right. one, that was a Department of Education study under Secretary of Education John King, uh-huh. and then that said teachers of color influenced the outcome not only of black students but of all students. Right. Then Dr. Constance Lindsay at University of North Carolina, she led the study that said if you get one black teacher in elementary, between third and fifth grade, your chances of dropping out of school decreased by 39%. Your chances of going to college increased by 19%. And then she has another survey that talks about how discipline is affected when you have teachers of color in the classroom. It not only proves the overall discipline of the school, but students of color are less likely to be targeted, suspended, and kicked out of schools when you have teachers of color. And even in the state of Virginia, they released the information set for every school district that increases their teachers of color by 1%, their overall suspension rates drops by half a percent. You know, my wife worked in prison reform in Los Angeles. We lived in Los Angeles for, for a spell and, you know, she would go into some of the most vulnerable communities in LA and, she, you know, she was shocked to find that there were kids who grew up in Los Angeles and never seen the beach, never, never seen the ocean, by the way. And, you know, I have been a part of uh, programs that send University of Richmond students into communities in, um, in Richmond that aren't that dissimilar. Um, there is a difference between RVA and Richmond, right, um, yeah. in some ways. And how, how do we, what role does that isolation, I mean, th- there were young people, there are young people year after year that my students come into contact with that really have, had had no contact with, with white folks at all. This isolation still exists. Well, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. They have the police. The state. The state. The yes, the state. The state. You're absolutely right. The state mentality. That's right. It's it's usually people are intervening in their lives to um to regulate things. By the way, and that's the only contact they have. What obligation? How do we how do we deal with that? That in the twenty first century, we we this is still two Americas. And how is that shading what goes on in the classroom? Right. Well, for one thing, you benefit from exposure. You know, you always have to expose kids to things they don't know. For example, when I taught at George With, this was, I think, my second year of teaching. I remember we were going on a field trip to the Coliseum to see a basketball game. And I, about half my class had never been past the Coliseum. You know, half the class had never been past the Richmond Coliseum. Another, you know, quarter had only gone out to Willow Long. That was as far 
as they've gone. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that we give them access. We give them exposure to whatever they want to be. You never know what may spark an interest. One of the things I always did throughout my travels, you know, even before I became teacher of the year, just in general, if I saw a black person in a role that was non-stereotypical or a job that I thought was interesting, I would take a picture with that person and hang it up in my classroom. Right. Just to, to, to have that conversation. For, like, I remember when I went to CBS this morning as teacher of the year, when I came back, the first thing I did was show them, show my kids the two pictures of the producers, two brothers that produced CBS, the number one morning show in America is produced. You can do this. Right. You know, you one of them got, right. he literally told me he got his start taking pictures at his church. Right. That's literally how he started getting into um, filmography, directing and things like that. And so how is that any different from a kid who has a smartphone with a good camera who right. likes taking pictures? You never know what may spark the interest. If I had a black pilot, I made sure I took a picture with black pilot, black flight attendants. When I went to NASA, when I saw any black scientists, we taking a picture, you know, because we have to give them access and opportunity. Right. And I remember in 2008, you know, when I worked at Armstrong High School, I started teaching AP. But I knew that to not only do I have to give them access, but I have to give them opportunity. Right. So, Started extra tutor, and we started doing the work. And lo and behold, we had some of the highest AP scores in, you know, the city of Richmond. That's what opened the community, the specialty high schools. We were up there with them because we gave them access, opportunity, and support. Right. And that's really all our kids needs: access, opportunity, and support. Let's talk about teachers. Like, how do you mitigate against burnout, right? I, one of the things I noticed at John B. Carey, where my daughter went to elementary, is the turnover rate was rather high amongst teachers. Can you talk a little bit about the recruitment challenges um, in terms of getting teachers, uh, good teachers into Richmond Public Schools and how we keep them, right? Well, for, um, recruitment challenges, you know, is a, that's part of my job now. It's, it varies. For one thing we know right now, we're going to see a high attrition rate due to burnout, due to the pandemic. We know that's the case. Right. But we also know that teachers of, even before the pandemic, teachers of color were leaving the field at twice the rate as white teachers. Right. And then male teachers of colors were leaving the fields twice the rate as female teachers of color because of something called the invisible tax. As Secretary Ed John King says, the invisible tax on teachers of color who are not only responsible for all the pedagogical knowledge of a white teacher, but then there's that cultural tax of having to be the, the kid that the teacher kids rely upon, having to be in charge of the cultural climate committee. You know, especially with male teachers, you know, you have to do the discipline mm -hmm. you know, because, oh, we can't handle these kids. Let's send them to this teacher who has a good relationship and can handle them. And so all that is just such an extra burden. So what we have to do is we have to alleviate that burden on teachers of color right. you know, to make sure that they aren't doing all the work. You know, Bettina, Bettina Love often talks about that ally versus that accomplice. You know, we need accomplices, people who will use their privilege to help break down those barriers for teachers of color and help break down those systemic barriers that exist in education because quite honestly, it's hard. You know, I talk right. to many, you know, people, teachers who just like, I can't do it no more because I'm burned out. I need something else. 
And so I'm doing all I can to help them, to support them. But we really need everybody to step up to the table. You know, I keep telling teachers, you know, I can do more than discipline and gym. You know, I'm a, I'm a pedagogical expert. I didn't need a national, I didn't need a national teacher of the year award to tell me that. Uh -huh. I know that. And right. so you allow teachers of color to lead, to be leaders, and then welcome them into space. Check your bias. Right. Check your your issues that are adding on to the stress of teachers of color. And that, then we can keep them in our spaces. Seems to be a kind of larger, even altitudinal problem, if you will. You know, one of the things I see in higher education is particularly with first generation students of color is that college is seen as a vehicle of upward mobility. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and this isn't just when, you know, they say, you know, when white folks get sick, black folks get pneumonia, mm -hmm. right? This isn't just a problem with first gen students of color, but a lot of kids come into college in large part because it's so expensive nowadays and want our immediate return on the, this investment and going into degrees that pay off, right? Yeah. Um, immediately pay off. And the what I'm really getting at is how do we recruit more students of color into teaching um, when teaching isn't valued? like other careers are, and it doesn't pay like other careers pay. All right, all right, get ready. I'm about to go on a rant because okay. this is my name. All right. First of all, if we want to create more teachers of color, one, we got to create better experiences for them in school. Right. You know, far too many students of color are having really, really, really terrible, horrible, traumatic experiences in our school system. Mm -hmm. And so now we are asking them to, hey, why don't you come back to this place that did emotional and mental damage to you five days a week to do your work? You know, most people aren't going to do that. Nobody's going to go back to the scene of their, their crime as a career field. That's number one. Number two, like you said, the economic aspect. We really, really need to pay teachers more. You know, the fact that the Wall Street Journal released, um, a couple of years ago, released an article that just plain and simply said, Going into the education is a dumb fiscal move mm -hmm. because you require too much debt that you will never, ever pay off. So we must look at scholarships. We must look at grants. We must hold the Department of Education accountable for the loan payoff program that they denied 99% of the teachers from last year. You know, that's, that's number three. Then remove the systemic barriers in place. We know that testing and other barriers have been put in place, and those things are keeping teachers of color out of the classroom. We need to come up with alternative licensure um, programs. I was just reading a thing in Minnesota about they're eliminating alternative licensure program, which is gonna get rid of 3,000 teachers of color in their state. And I'm like, why would you do that? That is a systemic barrier, you know? Um, improve teacher programs, let's be honest. A lot of teacher colleges, there's a massive disconnect between what they're teaching their students and what they're facing. As a matter of fact, 62% of teachers said they feel unprepared to learn in urban environments. But we know what that urban means when they it's say black, urban right? environments. They, right. they, they're not prepared to deal with black students or students of color. So that half your teachers are saying, we're not prepared to deal with this. And I dealt with this. 50% of your students are, are urban, quote unquote, urban students. You know, And then on top of that, College is expensive, you know, and we're having teachers of color who are being held up by test um, practice and other licensure tests. So let me get this straight. I'm paying you 
$150,000 over four years, and you're letting me graduate when I don't can't even pass the test necessary to go into the field I paid you $150,000 to go into. So we really need to look at some of these colleges of ed and say, what are you doing to help those students pass those certifications? For example, if you're taking a math class, that math class should be Praxis 101, where that teacher learns how to pass the Praxis math test. You know, that's we really, really need to rethink that. And then one thing, early exposure. How many kids, are, how many black kids are we telling, brown kids are we telling, hey, you can be a teacher when you grow up? Right. So many of them are saying, hey, you can be a, you can be a, ball player, an astronaut, you can be an athlete, you can be right. this. How many do we say uh, you can be a teacher? So let's start some teachers for tomorrow, educators rising. Let's capture so many of them at that young age when they don't want to be, when they don't know what they want to be in life. And let's expose them to education. It may, it may work. It may not. But the fact is, we're getting them into college. We're getting them into options. And then we got to create safe spaces. You know, when I started RVA Men Teach, one of the first things all the guys in the program said was, I hate my school because... My school is 80% white women, and they are often hostile toward me in some way, shape, or form, whether it's a macroaggression or a microaggression. There's this hostility that exists. So now I've overcome all of these barriers to become a teacher. Now I'm in the classroom, and the classroom environment isn't welcoming of me from my colleagues. And then lastly, you got to help them out. With that invis- That's my doorbell. Sorry about that. Right. Don't worry about it. It's- <laughs> uh, and then we got to help eliminate the invisible tax. Let's let's do our work, our part to help teachers of color in the education field, so that they don't feel like they're doing all the heavy lifting. Okay, that's the end of my brain. So, um, you know, I've got to ask the proverbial question: What can be done then to prepare teachers who don't share their students' race or ethnicity or socioeconomic background? How do we get others? who don't represent a particular racial demographic to be sensitive to the demographic that they're teaching. <laughs> Trying to phrase this the right way. <laughs> um, whenever we go into a situation and we say, they are different from me, I don't know how to relate. That is a very kind of racist deficit mindset of thinking. Go into the situation and say, who am I? Who am I? What do I bring to the table? And how does who I am or how does my whiteness affect my relationship with my students? You know, I think so often we say, what's wrong with the kids? What's wrong with this? Put that mirror up and say, what's wrong with me? What have I encountered in my life that doesn't allow me to understand what these students are going through, what those students are experiencing. I think if we start to examine who we are and what biases we bring to the table, whether it be a racial bias, it could be a social economic bias, because let's be honest, I've run to plenty of middle-class black folks who cannot relate to the kids in the city of Richmond. Oh yeah. And so there's a lot of biases that we all bring to the table. So what we, like I had a rural bias, I I grew up in the country. You know, so when I started working in the city of Richmond, it took me a minute to understand how things are in the city. But a lot of that comes with unpacking who you are, being confident in who you are, and understanding how who you who you are 
affects your relationship with the students, the community, and everything. And once you start to do that, then you can start to teach students. You know, I don't want this to sound like some kind of pathological trope, right? But I grew up, you know, um, dealing with trauma at a very young age. And a lot of that trauma uh, that I dealt with in my community uh, had a profound influence on my educational experience. Yeah. You know, you taught in a detention center, right? A lot of the guys I grew up with have been in um, or are still in the penal system. How does, what did you learn about the school to prison pipeline um, and, the, and the extent to which toxic stress um, has impinged upon young African-Americans in particular's ability to matriculate through the school system? Well, I think once again, I don't like saying what is the school, what is wrong with the young men? What is wrong with the system right. that can't provide them with the necessary services they need? You know, so you talked about trauma, you know, well, when you go to school every day and you have to walk through metal detectors when you go in the first of all, you have to stand outside in the cold or rain to walk through metal detectors to see police officers standing behind after you get searched to see police officers standing behind metal detectors before you even go to class in the morning. That's just your daily routine of trauma, not to mention the trauma in your neighborhoods, the trauma at home, everything you deal with. Why is this system like this that we perpetuate the trauma that's go, that goes on in your life? Schools should be places of healing. You know, and I talked to so many of my students in the detention center and I asked them where was their first charge? 90% of them will tell them it was at school. Mm -hmm. I got a disorderly conduct charge, resisting arrest charge. My after school fight turned into an assault charge. And so what we're doing in our system is we're not healing our students. What we're doing is we're punishing them. We're pushing them out. We're pushing them straight into the prison system. And the reality is when they come into the juvenile detention center, you know, I often tell them, you know, I'm, you know, God don't really make no mistakes. So sometimes he tells you to sit down and re-examine your life and what led you to get to this point. You know, we can get you the help for your trauma. We can get you the social services you need, you know, but what we need you to do is learn how to control your issues. What are, what's the problem? You know, we're going to give you some mindfulness techniques. We're going to give you some counseling. We're going to try to help you deal with some of the issues that are affecting your life so that when you leave here, you're able to advocate for yourself in a better terms. You're able to do this on a different level and you're able to say, this is what I need because far too often, you know, I tell them nobody knows unless you ask for it. And these systems aren't built to deal with that. And so what you have to do as a student is ask for what you need, advocate for what we tell parents, advocate for what your students need because we know, you know what it takes for your child to be successful. You know, it's not, it's, I'm listening to you and I'm listening to the ways that you're advocating for change. This isn't calculus, by the way. This, these are, these are, I wouldn't, I dare, I wouldn't call them simple solutions, but they're, they're obvious in some ways. Why has it been so hard to implement them? Right? <laughs> right? Like, really? It's not, I mean, there, these are things that, what, why can't we turn that corner? What's, what, what, what is impinged upon our ability to, 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 to institute some of the things that you just discussed into the school system? I know what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, it goes back to the same old answer I've been doing the entire day. There's one thing that's a systemic racism, but there's also economic racism, meaning 
that black there's a profit motive in black bodies. And if we don't address that when we talk educational reform, then I feel we're missing an opportunity. When I say profit motive, number one, we can talk about the over-medication of, of black boys and girls. We can talk about how that's an industry in itself. We can talk about how the suspension is an industry in itself. The prison is an industry itself. And so until we start talking about the per looking at black boys and girls as people rather than numbers and dollar signs, we're not going to change the system because there are too many people benefiting off of the system. You talk is it this is this is the poverty industrial complex, by yes. the way, right? Where you know, urban and suburban housing markets, where 501c3s, where college grant writing yeah. are all dependent upon certain communities' poverty for their survival, yes. right? Um, and even sometimes, you know, when institutions of higher education get involved in these matters, it becomes an issue of poverty tourism where uh, the, the communities that they're reaching out to, they're not helping. So how, if there is money to be made in black suffering and like, how do we, really, how do we turn that corner, by the way? Um, in the suffering. We have to start, we have to come up with ways to end the suffering. And by end the suffering, I mean, we need to start looking at what is our social safety net? You know, far, one of the biggest problems in America is that school is a social safety net for children. Right. It shouldn't be that way. School is a place of education. But now school is the only place a child can get mental health services. School is the only place kids can see an actual doctor. I've had kids come to school with horrific injuries just to go to the school nurse because they can't get health care or you know, access to anything else. And so what we have to do is start looking, fixing the social safety net so that schools can really be places of healing, places of education, and not a place that feeds children. You know, One of the biggest things I'm proud of Richmond Public Schools is instantly once the pandemic hit, we went into feed mode. We fed so many kids. I think they've given out almost a million meals mm -hmm. you know, over the time of the pandemic. Sure. Sure. But that shouldn't be the job of the school. There should be some sort of safety net in society that makes sure students are fit, that makes sure, you know, so many, so much of our resources and effort went into feeding kids during the pandemic, whereas we could have spent that time coming up with better ways to create remote learning, online learning. But instead, you know, teachers administrators, we're giving out meals to our kids. Now, we do that because we love our kids, but the reality is society should step up. You know, other social services should step up so that schools can get back into the business of educating kids and stop being the social safety net for all things. You know, can you give us some specific examples of how a focus on economic and cultural equity could help disrupt this, right? What's, well, let me, let me rephrase this question. 20 years is a long time. Mm -hmm. What have you seen change in Richmond public schools for the better, right? And what kind of shocking continuity um, do you wish would just go away, right? Well, of course, with gentrification, you know, it's gentrified, the city has been gentrified in the past 20 years. Sure. It really took off in, when the Great Recession hit. And what happened during the Great Recession was you saw a lot of parents 
who came upon hard times and could no longer afford to send their kids to the private schools. To, and so they started to demand better Richmond public schools, which is great. I'm a big advocate of having parents involved. I think, you know, par- I often say parents are the best teachers because they know their children, you know. And so that was a great thing. But here's the problem. When the middle class started to demand more of the system, the middle class needs were much different than the poor needs, mm-hmm. the lower social economic needs. And so what's happening is that voice of gentrification has become so loud that it's drowning out the lower the poor, the poor residents of our city. And so they're struggling to advocate and find their voice. Because number one, being poor is the hardest job in America. It's a 24-7 full-time job. So you don't have the time or the access to advocate and to do what's best for your kids. And what's happening is decisions are being hijacked by the loud vocal minority. You know, whereas like I'm like right now, you know, there's a loud vocal minority that's against year-round school in the city of Richmond. That's going on right now at the school. You know, that's really like, we don't need it. We don't want it. But the survey of parents says, this is something that we want. But that loud vocal minority is hijacking the conversation. And so I really think we need to start pulling ourselves down and saying, wait a minute, am I speaking for the community or am I allowing the community to speak for itself? It's absolutely amazing when you were articulating that I, I couldn't help but think about how those com- those very conversations came up during massive and, and passive resistance right right we started on that one <laughs> yeah, right i mean the the the, the kind of shockingly predict- predictable continuity of uh, self-interest in a public school system the difference, right the difference is during massive resistance there was a willful intent of course, harm, you know, poor people, mainly poor people of color. Whereas today, there's an intent to advocate for self, but you don't realize that you're harming the people the same way. And you're thinking that what you know is better for those people. What obligation do people have when they move into a city, right? There are no blank slates, right? (laughs) You inherit a city's problems when you move into it. How do we raise consciousness? Yes, yes, and and what we what we need is we need parents. We need parents to stand up and speak for their children. One thing as an educator, I've always said, is a parent is talking, no matter who they are, what they come, where they come from, what their background is, you listen. Whether it's a rich parent making six figures or somebody making minimum wage, everybody wants what's best for their children. So your job as an educator is to stop, listen, and say, hold up, does this benefit the majority of our students? You know, far too many times we get caught up in these arguments of, you know, we get, we put our polls in these positions and say, no, I'm against this. It's not about whether or not you're against or for something. The number one question is, does this benefit kids? Yes or no? If it's no, we're not going to deal with it. If it's yes, how can we improve on it so that it benefits even more kids? And I think that's what we, those are. That's where the conversation needs to be had. And then we need to start saying whose voices are at the table when we're right, at the right. 
I think our voice isn't at the table. And how do we get them here so that we can make sure we're being fair and equitable to all people? I, I think, though, you know, one of the things I, I couldn't help but wonder when you were talking about the kind of politics of self-interest that are drowning out um, uh, people's voices, there still is in this city, uh, I would say a politics of maliciousness. There are people yeah. in 2021 who simply don't want their children going to school with a kid from Gilpin or Creighton Court. Or, and you go or, back. We go back to that, and I was so glad that I was on my teacher of the year tour when they were doing that whole, when they were attempting the integration of the school system, because I didn't, you know, I wasn't on a day-to-day, but when I saw some, that was some of the most racist, horrible comments made by parents and by teachers who didn't understand why they would make, why those comments were racist. And so, you know, I'm, I'm of the mindset of you say something like that around me, I'm going to correct you and tell you why that is a racist, horrible statement. And so I was glad I wasn't around for that because I'm pretty sure there would have been a lot of, <laughs> I don't know if I would have a job because one, one thing you're not going to do is you're not going to talk down to me. The teacher of the year student. is no longer a teacher, yeah. y'all. You know, because, <laughs> Check yourself, check your privilege at the door. You remember what I said, you know, the most, the biggest thing we can do is check ourselves and check our privilege and how that's perpetual, how we push that on the other people. So I'm going to turn to some questions from the audience and there were, uh, there are a lot of people. So we took some uh, questions beforehand in large part because of the format. Uh, Here's one I think that even gets us to think beyond Richmond and the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, which is, does the federal government have a role to play in educational equity? Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think when we see what happens when we leave states to their own, you know, the, I mean, for, the, for right now, just look at the voting rights, what's going on in the country. Mm-hmm. When we leave states on their own without oversight, they're going to make laws and, that specifically target and hurt people in communities of color. So I really think it's the job of the federal government to step in. One thing I wish the US Department of Education could play a bigger role in education of our students in, in the country. One thing, like when we st- with the whole Common Core argument, people lost their mind about Common Core mm-hmm. because the United States Department of Education said, hey, we would like for all kids in all 50 states to have the same standards of education. And people lost their mind over that. Think about that. Somebody said, we want a policy where all kids in the United States learn the same thing. And people straight up lost their mind over that. You know, I think the federal government really has stuff. Number one, step it up on the funding. Step it up on the funding because we know that there's massive inequities across the United States. And it's funny because the states who get the most money are usually the states that are the most against government influence, you know, and interference in education. And so we really need the federal government to step up on the standards part. We need them to step up on the funding part. And then lastly, the Office of Civil Rights and the Department of Education. I mean, some of the things that are taking place in these states now are, are ridiculous. And it's because our previous administration dismantled the US Department of Education and Civil Rights. You know, I think it was just last week, um, I think it was Mississippi bet, passed a ban on transgender athletes, mm-hmm. you know? young girls are, you know, Title IX was all but destroyed, you know, under the previous administration. So we need them to come in and start protecting our kids. And you don't even have to go to another state. Look what's going on in Gloucester. The fact that they're taking this case to the Supreme Court 
about transgender bathrooms. It's like, first of all, if I'm a citizen of Gloucester, I'm pissed that you're wasting my tax dollars continuously fighting something where you're on the wrong side of history, you know? And so we really need the U.S. Department of Education, Civil Rights Division to step up and protect our kids. So someone asked, and do charter schools have a role to play in achieving education? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? This is an argument that I don't, I don't even think it's an argument because schools have failed black and brown kids for over 60 years now. Why not give a public charter school a chance to do something better? Why not give communities autonomy to create their schools? You know, schools are, schools are funded on a per pupil basis. You know, if I have a community and the school in that community has been bad for 20, 30 years, if the parents of that community say, hey, wait a minute, we want to take our tax dollars and we want to try something new that works for our kids, I'm for it. I don't care if you're charter, public, private, I don't care. If you're a good school, especially a school that does a great job educating children of color, uh -huh. I'm all for it. You know, you got me thinking about something even bigger. Like that statement right there, I couldn't help but want, you know, we talk about public school in the United States as if it's a declension narrative, as if things have gotten worse. What if we were never really invested in educating all the kids all the time? We weren't. And the school system is working precisely how it was designed to work, right? We talk, literally, people talk about the public school system as, as, as if it's somehow emerged in a worse place than it was right, 70 years ago. I don't think it is. I think the school system is working precisely like it was intended to work. Right? Exactly, and that's what I tell people. These spaces weren't made for us. So why not allow communities of color to take their tax dollars and say, let's create a space made for us, made for our kids? Because, you know, Dr. Charles Coles, a friend of mine often says, we owe these systems nothing. And if this system is completely failing our children, then we really need to rethink how the system operates. And maybe it's time to do some changing to the system. And, you know, I know Virginia is one of the worst states to start a charter school. And it starts with the legislature as far as how, we, how do we get laws that are more lenient to allow parents that autonomy to create their own schools, you know. And, and you know what pushed me over the charter school argument? Working at the jail. I was surprised by the way your answer. I got to tell you that, right? Working at the jail because when I went to the jail, when I first got there, people said, this is literally three things I was told. Keep them quiet. Don't let them fight. Don't let us, don't get us sued. That was literally what I was told when I started working at the jail by jail folks. But with that, that meant nobody was checking over my shoulder for pacing charts. Nobody was checking over my shoulder for all the bureaucratic things that... You had liberty. Yeah, I had liberty. And so what we did, since we were all veteran educators, we started doing what our kids needed to be successful. And lo and behold, they were successful. They began to pass state tests. They passed GED. Some were getting college credit. You know, it's like, wait a minute. When I was freed from the bureaucracy that has been damaging all these kids we were able to have success. So is there something wrong with me? <laughs> is there something wrong with the kid? Or is there something wrong with the bureaucracy? Uh -huh. And so that's when I said, wait a minute. And that's when I started, 
you know, talking to people around the country. And there are some network, you know, let's be honest, charter schools, there's some terrible, terrible charter schools. I'm a firm believer if a school is bad, shut it down. Whether it's public, public charter, private, if it's bad and it's taking taxpayers' money, shut it down. But if it's a good school and it has a track record of helping people, let's see how we can scale that out so that it benefits more society. And I know that's an argument that isn't very popular, especially here in Virginia, but I'm pro-charter school, especially charter schools that I know are committed to the community, were started by parents and have high expectations for black and brown children, and they exceed those expectations. So I could, this is another question, I think dovetails into this perfectly. Could you comment on how using state taxes rather than county and city real estate taxes to fund schools might improve equity in education? If we gave parents the dollars to do what they wanted to do, you know, first of all, number one, we need to fully fund school. Number one, let's make sure communities of color on average receive $23 billion less than white schools. Let me say that again. On average, they get $23 billion less, you know. So imagine if they got the funding necessary. You know, my big fear with the whole, with the $1.9 trillion was American Recovery Act is that they're going to say, here, schools have all this money. And then though that money is not going to go to the schools who need it most or the schools who need it most. For example, I, you know, Richmond Public Schools, you know, we get, all, we get all this money from the federal government. A large percentage of our money has to go toward making sure our buildings are safe because mm-hmm. the state has neglected them for over... 50 or 100 years. Right. So we're talking about, oh, Richmond got all this money, got this money. Well, this money is going back, sort of rebuilding what was wrong from the start. So we're not spending this money on extra tutors, extra staff to make cover up for learning loss. We're using this money just to upgrade facilities so that our students can walk in the door. So we really need to start talking some equity, making sure that this money is going toward you know, school divisions that need it most. Because what we're doing, if you're only funding inequitable systems, you're only going to make the inequities even larger. That deep in them. Uh, A a ceiling towel fell on my daughter's head in fourth grade at John B. Carey Elementary School, by the way. You know know what? I remember that. I remember that incident. (laughs) And And you know what was so frustrating? I remember the same day the head coach of the Washington Redskins was in town complaining about the roads in the city of Richmond. Right. I'm like, oh, maybe if we had had $30 million that we had given you all into the schools, we could have fixed the school, the building, you know? Um, So, by the way, um, a student just emailed me a question, by the way. Um, They circumnavigated the system. So I'm going to ask, this is from uh, Christopher Wilson. He wants to know, why won't the federal government move to make education a fundamental right? Is it possible that they have not made this move to avoid the chance that would upset the racial and socioeconomic balance of whites being on top while the rest of American society lies at the bottom? Um, um, You're assuming the federal government has the best interest of people in mind when you make that question. You know, one of the biggest things and my biggest issues right now, you know, is there's this liberal argument education that all the problems in education will be solved if we integrated the schools. You know, the federal government came in and forced integration. 
No. And let me explain why. First of all, there's a historical, first of all, we fell for that okie doke in 1954. Mm-hmm. When we said Brown versus Board said, we're going to integrate schools and schools are going to be great. You know, well, guess what? Black schools were great before 1954. You know, there was an entire black middle class built on all black schools, HBCUs. And then what we said was, hey, if we're going to have funding, if we're going to um, fund schools, we need to fund schools equally. Somehow the federal government turned that into an integration argument, you know? And so, like, for example, if you go back and you ask Linda Brown, Linda Brown herself and her parents, they didn't want to go to the all-white school because it was a better school. They loved the black school. They wanted to go to the all-white school because it was across the street. And if she went to the black school, she'd have to walk seven blocks and cross railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants an elementary school student having that walk tracks. every day. You right. know what I mean? That was the basis of that case. Somehow it turned into, if it's not close to white schools, it's an inferior product. And that sort of said that black schools weren't good. And we bought into that mindset. You know, and so we started integrating schools. And one of the biggest casualties of school integration was the fact that we lost 50,000 black teachers and administrators. And we've never gained that back. You know, it's interesting. We were talking about this earlier Um, because there were so many obstacles to African-American upward mobility. Right. uh, Before the mid 20th century, many of the best and brightest young minds went into teaching education. Right. And then they got fired as soon as Brown said integrate the schools because you didn't get like you had to get permission from white parents to teach their students. And if one white parent said no, then you were out of a job. And so we lost so much black capital, not only black capital that was invested in our communities, invested in our kids, something we've never, ever rebuilt. And so when I hear school integration arguments, all I'm hearing is people saying the only way black people can be good or achieve is if they're close to white people. And that is a horrible deficit mindset way of thinking when dealing with black children. You want to tell them you can be great on your own. And so what we're going to do is we're going to give you the resources necessary. We're going to give you the cultural equity, the economic equity, and we're going to grow you to be whatever you are. And then the biggest issue is a lot of these schools are not safe places for kids of color. We know about the disproportionate suspension rates. You know, in, in Virginia alone, you know, for every one white kid that gets suspended, three black children get suspended. It's also a coincidence that one in three black people have contact with the criminal justice system. Right, right. You know what I mean? When I graduated from high school, the file on me was as thick as a Webster dictionary. Yeah. Right? And so I'm, I'm not playing, but I'm dead serious. Because, and I got shipped out to a predominantly white school from my neighborhood. And And so what what we really need to do is say, hey, let's make sure that all schools are funded equitably. The schools that don't, our neighborhoods that have been systematically segregated and disadvantaged, let's make sure they have extra resources to make up for the wrongs of history rather than, you know, trying to integrate them into space. Look what happened last week. Did you see that story about that teacher that made that five-year-old black kid unclog the toilet with his hands? Why would any black person want to send their kid to that environment where that can happen? 
Now black people have to have conversations with their kids this week saying, if a teacher tells you not to clog your to unclog the toilet with your hands, don't do it. So literally. I'll ask you one more question while we're running out of time. How do we, on the one hand, prepare kids from vulnerable and isolated communities to meet the challenges of a diversifying society, right? But then give them the types of um, education that you just articulated about being prideful in in your community and in, in your area. Well, for one thing, we need to make sure they're getting a culturally affirming education. You know, society tells black and brown kids so many negative things about themselves. And so, number one, that education has to show them what they can be, has to give them access, has to give them opportunity, has to build up their self-esteem, and it has to have the resources necessary to do that. It requires a whole-scale recentering of education. We need to stop centering Black success on proximity to whiteness and, and put Black success as Black success. You see, you understand what I'm saying? No, we need, and so, and I hate that argument because it's, it's such a deficit mindset way of thinking with our Black kids to say, oh, the only way I can do something is if I go be near a white person or a white school. And it sort of it conditions them to think that this is okay, that the way your that your neighborhood is okay, that everything that comes up that has been forced on you is okay. You should accept this. Liberation um, education says no. I am great. I demand this, and I'm going to get this. And it's really about time we started funding our schools so that. Communities of color and poor communities, students start to grow with that mindset of, I can be whatever I want. I have the resources to be whatever I want, no matter what people tell me I I am not. And so we really need to have a real focus on what is education for students of color in America. Brother Rodney, thank you for being with us tonight. Um, We're unfortunately out of time. Uh, Again, thank you to all our participants. Uh, for joining us. Remember to check out the Jepson and Alumni Facebook and Instagram accounts and the alumni website for additional information about upcoming virtual events. We hope you have a great rest of your evening. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.